welcome to those of you joining us online. If it's your first time with us, we are glad that you're here. My name is Andrew Bondurant, and I am married to Bree, one of our worship leaders here at Newburgh. So, all that to say, if you had her pegged with some other joker, no, 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 that's my wife, okay? Get it straight. Get that straight. And since joining the team here at Crossroads just over three years ago, we've added another member to our family, our son Abe, who's right here in the middle in this picture. He is the happiest man in the world to be at Newburgh campus anytime he comes. And he also serves as the ball coordinator in the nursery, which means if your child complains about someone stealing a ball from them, I apologize, that was probably my kid, okay? Um, but there are a few things I want to let you know before we get in to maybe help you better understand me, better identify with me as I'm going today. First, I have been sick all week, so if I cough in the middle of this, I apologize. I hope it's not too distracting. Second thing, I am one of six kids. You may say, what on earth does that have to do with anything? It means that if you see me in the hallways or at Walmart or anywhere, you don't have to know my name. Just yell a name in my direction, and I'll assume you're talking to me, okay? So that's good news. Third thing, I was homeschooled for all but two years leading up into college, and that's my excuse for anything I ever do wrong, okay? So if I blame it on being homeschooled, that's coming from a fellow homeschooler, okay? So if you're homeschool or homeschool parent, don't worry, not knocking you, I was one, okay? And then the third, or the final thing, the fourth thing, again, I can't count homeschooled. Um, <laughs> the fourth thing is um, I was born and raised in eastern Kentucky, and I'm proud of it, which means that I may have an occasional y'all sneak in, or I may have a little draw that sneaks in. It catches me off guard too, so I hope that's not too distracting, okay? So now let's go ahead and jump in. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 3 today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you or underneath you, depending on where you are sitting. The book of Colossians is in the back fourth of your Bible. It goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, followed by First and Second Thessalonians. Or if you're like me, um, I'm a pastor, and I just go to the table of contents sometimes because it's a lot quicker. So do what you want. Get to the book of Colossians. And as you are turning there, um, I've got a question for you guys. And it's going to sound complicated, but I'll break it down, I promise. The question is this. Have you ever had a time in your life where you had a hard time getting your words and your actions to line up with a new reality, okay? Now that new reality could be a new job, it could be a new relationship, it could be a new house, it could be a new car, but have you ever had a time where your words and actions had a hard time lining up with your new reality? Um, when I, we had our son Abe, we decided it was time to trade in my two-door coupe for a minivan, and I love our minivan, so I don't have a problem with it, but the problem I had was I had driven a five-speed manual transmission stick shift for the previous like five or six years. So the second day I'm in my minivan, I'm driving down the Lloyd, and all of a sudden I go to hit the clutch, and I hit the brake and slow down to about 20 miles an hour. You see what was happening, my, my actions were having a hard time catching up with my new car that I was driving. Or maybe for you, you have a new job and you answer the phone one of your first days and you say, hey, this is so-and-so from whoever your former employer was. Doesn't work out right because your words aren't catching up with your new reality. Or maybe you're in a new relationship and you've got a wonderful new significant other and you just so happen to call them by the name of a former significant other. Why? Because your words are having a hard time catching up with your new reality. Have you ever been there before? Well, um, my wife and I got married five years ago on August 24th, so we just celebrated our anniversary, which is great. She deserves a medal. You can clap for her. Yeah, great job, Bree. You made it. 
Now, um, in those five years, I've learned a ton, and really what I've learned is I don't know anything about marriage. But whenever I started out those first few months, I started out really, really confident. I mean, I grew up with four sisters, and I had my mom growing up, so clearly I understood how women worked, right? Because all women are the same, except not really. I actually didn't know much of anything, and I found that out pretty quick. And one of the troubles I had in my first few months was getting my actions to line up with my new relationship status as married. So, so what was happening was I, I worked at a Christian university, Kentucky Christian University. I oversaw all of men's housing, which is just as glorious as it sounds, dealing with like 300 college guys was fantastic. And part of the perk of the job, I got a free apartment along with my new wife inside of the main men's dorm, which is full of 100 football players and a bunch of other basketball players as well. And Bree stayed married to me. It's great, you know? But in those first few months, the, the job wasn't paying all that great, but it came with a free meal plan. So the thing that, that I really ran into trouble with the first few months was, was what I would do is at like 4.30 or 5, I'd be working on campus, and I'd be like, man, I'm hungry, and I'm a responsible adult, so I'm going to go to the cafeteria and eat dinner before I go home to save money on groceries. Responsible adult, right? Should have been great. Well, the problem was is, is after I would eat dinner, I would then go home to find my wonderful new wife fixing dinner. And, well, I didn't know a whole lot about marriage, but I knew enough to know that the last thing I wanted to do was say, oh, don't worry, I already ate. So what I would do is I would eat a second dinner. Now, you would think for a normal person, that takes one or two times to figure out the problem. No, it took me eight times in our first three months to realize, wait a minute, maybe you should text your wife and say, hey, do we have dinner plans tonight? Or maybe even better, hey, do you want to come to dinner with me? I'm getting ready to go eat. But I had a really hard time getting my actions to line up with my new reality. It took me a long time. And if you look at the book of Colossians, the first two chapters focus on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how what Jesus has done gives believers a whole new reality, a whole new identity. And then as he moves from chapter 2 into chapter 3, what he starts doing is saying, hey, these are the implications of your new identity. This is how you should live in light of your new reality. He starts off in chapter 3, verse 1, by writing this. He says, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As that verse starts out, those first two, verse, or first two words in chapter, or verse one is very important, the, the so if idea, because what Paul is doing there, he's not asking a question, he's making a statement. He's saying, hey, this is true about you. I'm assuming that this is true about you, and if this is true about you, then... You need to live this way. Then you need to seek the things that are above. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And right off the bat, we're hit with a question, and it's simply this. Have you been raised with Christ? Have you received Christ? Now, if you haven't and you're here, I am so glad that you are here today. But what I want you to know is that if what I talk about here in the next few minutes sounds impossible, it's because it is apart from Jesus. 
You see, the first two chapters tell us about Jesus who went onto a rescue mission to save us from a place of darkness and deliver us into a place of light. Not only that, but it tells us that Jesus is now sitting on the throne above all things. So if you haven't given Jesus a chance before, I ask that you'll stay with me today and look and see and ask the question, if Jesus is who he says he is, what do I have to lose giving him a chance? But if you have been raised with Christ, what Paul does is is he gives us a question. What is the ultimate pursuit in your life? What is it that you're spending your time and your effort and your best energies pursuing? If it's money, if if it's a job, if it's a promotion, if it's developing the perfect family, well, those things aren't going to hold up. So what Paul does is, is he tells us to seek the things that are above. What does that mean, though? Well, if we go back to chapter one of the book of Colossians, Colossians one, verse five, tells us that that there is a hope that has been secured for us in heaven. So my question for you is, is what would look different in your life if you started to seek the things that are above and you started to see, wait a minute, my hope is secure. What happens in your life when you you stop fighting for victory and you start fighting from victory, when you start seeing that that this life isn't about earning more and more, but it's recognizing that Christ has already won and already earned this salvation for you, and that means you get to live in victory. What would that change if you started filling your mind with that? Or if you jump to, to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, and there you see a picture of Jesus who is on the throne. I mean, it says that that he is before all things, that that in him all things hold together. If that's true, and we begin to set our minds on things that are above, the question becomes, what is it in our lives are we holding too tightly to that if we really believe that all things hold together in Christ, we'd be able to let go of? For me, yesterday morning, I had to laugh at myself because I was going back through my notes getting ready and I was so frustrated yelling at God because I had a cold this week and I can't really talk clearly and it's really driving me nuts. And then I thought, wait a minute, if Christ is on the throne and if all things hold together in him, what's a little cold, right? Or earlier this week as I was going through this passage and I asked the question you have to ask before you teach the scripture and it's simply this, God, what do you have for me And he said, well, um, you know what you're holding too tightly to? Some of the things going on here at church, you're trying to to control things in your realm that you're not supposed to. So you know what I did? I said, okay, you're much better at holding this stuff than I am. And I was able to step back and take a deep breath because I was carrying weights I wasn't supposed to carry. And I think, if you're honest, you've probably got some of those things in your life too where you're holding on too tightly, and if you were to fix your mind on the fact that Jesus is on the throne, you might experience some freedom. You might experience a relief because you don't have to carry those things. Jesus is carrying them for you. You see, we must see that that ultimately Jesus is the point of everything. Here's the point I I don't want you to miss here if you're a believer or a non-believer, and it's simply this. You never outgrow your need for the gospel. You never outgrow your need for Jesus. Jesus doesn't just get you in the door, and then after that, you're on your own to go and do bigger and better things. No, you only grow deeper into the gospel. 
See, the gospel is the good news that, that God had created all things good. But then sin came in and it corrupted God's good creation. But God didn't leave us there. But he came and he sent Jesus on a rescue mission to rescue us and redeem us. And because of what Jesus has done, he invites us into a mission to expand his kingdom. So if you remind yourself day in and day out that you're never able to press forward on your own strength, but you're always dependent upon what Christ did for you, I hope that will allow you to experience some freedom. We never outgrow the gospel. See, the thing I think Paul's wanting us to see in these first four verses is this. Your identity with Jesus changes the way you think. It changes the way you view your circumstances. It changes the way you view yourself. It changes the way you view your purpose. Maybe you're here today and you're hearing this and you're like, I don't know about all that. This whole identity with Jesus thing, this whole being raised with Jesus thing sounds a little bit weird. And I will tell you, it is weird, okay? That's not like a normal idea that we think about day in and day out. It's a weird idea. But as one who tried to build my life on my ability to perform at work, as one who tried to, to build my identity on my ability to perform in school, as one who tried to find my identity in my relationship status, let me tell you, when you fail in those areas, you're crushed by the weight of things you weren't designed to carry. See, a relationship makes a terrible savior. A job makes a terrible savior. But when your identity is in Christ, you're freed from that. And that's the thing I've experienced. And since being able to place my trust in Jesus, I no longer have to carry a weight I wasn't created to carry. Now, after talking about this idea of setting our minds on things that are above, Paul goes on in verses 5 through 8 to write this. He says, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, uh, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. One of the best principles I ever learned about reading scripture is simply this. Anytime you see the word therefore, look what it's there for. Now, that may be like a common understanding to normal students, but again, I was homeschooled, so I don't know if that's part of just regular English training or studying the Bible training, but it's changed the way I read my Bible. And if you see the word therefore in verse 5, I think all you have to do is go up two verses earlier to see what Paul is actually talking about. You see, right there in verse 3, Paul wrote, for you died and your life is hidden with God. Here, Paul takes it a step further and says, because you died... Put to death. Because you died to these things, put to death this stuff that is killing you. A few years ago, I moved down to Costa Rica and I lived there for about seven months with some missionaries. And while we were there, we worked with a lot of different churches. But, but some of the churches that we lived were in remote areas in Costa Rica. And one of those places was a small fishing village called Hobo. Now, for us to get to Hobo, what we would do is we would get into a car, we would drive four hours, and then we'd get on a boat, ride 45 minutes, we'd stay the night in one fishing village, and we'd get up the next morning, and we'd take another 45-minute boat ride, and we'd get out on this little strip of land and then hike through the jungle. 
No joke, second time I go on this trip with these missionaries, I hop out of the boat and look over, there's baby crocodile to the left. And I'm like, okay, I'm not in Grayson, Kentucky anymore. There are weird things in Eastern Kentucky, but I've never seen a baby crocodile when I jumped out of the lake, okay? So it's already a little weird. And, and as you're hiking through, you've got spider monkeys over top of you, you've got howler monkeys, you've got poison dart frogs hopping around on the ground, which are awesome. Um, but as we're hiking through, the guy that's leading us is a guy named Pastor Orville. And Pastor Orville is my hero, okay? He's the guy that planted this church. He's like 65, and he's like running through this jungle, and I'm trying to keep up with him. And so we get, and we go for a while, and we realize we've pulled away from part of our group. So he decides we're going to stop by this tree. So we stop by this tree. There we are, me, Pastor Orville, the rest of our group. And all of a sudden, Pastor Orville jumps up and starts pointing his machete at something, which means I jump up and start to look at what he's pointing at. And I look, and there's a snake. So I jump back because I don't do snakes, okay? There are a lot of things I do. Mice, possums, I'm good. Snake, you call somebody else, okay? I don't do snakes. So I hop back, and I'm like, okay, what are you going to do? Well, I watch Mr. Or yeah, Pastor Orville there. He machetes that fool, all right? He just takes that snake, chops it up with a machete. I'm like, you are my hero. I love this man, all right? But we had another woman in our group who's from southern Illinois, and apparently she knew better how to live in the jungle than Pastor Orville did. So she starts to yell at him for killing this poor innocent snake. But you see, what this woman didn't know that Pastor Orville knew and that I didn't know at the time is that this snake was a fertilance snake. And if you don't know what a fertilance snake is, Google fertilance bite and then click on Google images and forever be scarred, okay? A fertilance snake is the most dangerous snake in all of Costa Rica. And the snake wasn't just a danger to me. It wasn't just a danger to Pastor Orville. It wasn't just a danger to our group. But this snake was a danger to the villagers who walked by there each and every day. So, as a wise man who knew that this snake was deadly, what Pastor Orville did is he put this snake to death. And you know, I think that's what Paul is talking about here in this passage He's saying your sin is just like that deadly snake. It's not something to play with. It's not something that you just hide away in a closet somewhere. But unfortunately, I think a lot of times we view our sin as being like a cute little bunny that we just put into a cage for a while. You know, you just put your bunny there. You get it out when you want. It bounces around, but, but it's completely harmless, Right? We view our sin as, as something that, that while there are serious sins, there are other ones that are okay. Other ones that, that can just play around, you can, you can bring out when you want, but you have complete control over. But let me tell you this, sin is never satisfied with just a little slice of your life. Sin has one purpose, and that purpose is to destroy. So we can't just play with it, we can't just wait, because sin is seeking to destroy not only you, but also your relationships. You see, a lot of times we think about sin as something that only affects us. But the fact is that sin rarely, if ever, only affects you. Sin rarely, if ever, only affects me. That relationship you have at work where you're getting a little too close with a coworker, that affects the way you view your spouse. That affects the way you start thinking when you're at home. It's not just harming you. 
That gossip that, that has a root in your heart that's just spilling out when you're at home, when you're on the phone with your best friend, or, or when you're talking with your spouse, whatever it may be, that's not just affecting you and the person hearing. That's also affecting your kids who are listening, who are starting to learn how to talk about people they disagree with, who are learning how to talk about those who, who they don't get along with. Now, if sin is so serious, then I think we need to actually think through how we're going to go about putting it to death. Here are a few steps that I would recommend. The first thing is this, be in a relationship with Jesus. Like we said earlier, if what we're talking about today sounds impossible, it's because it is apart from Jesus. The second thing is this, identify the sin. I found in my life that, that the time that sin most deeply takes root in my life is whenever I, I use the, the, the saying, you know, well, I'm a sinner just like everybody else, but I refuse to look down deeper and say, but what sin is currently eating away? Identify what the specific sin is and name it so that you can defeat it. The third thing is this, share your sin with others. Now, that's really uncomfortable and it sounds crazy in our culture today, but the fact is God didn't create us to live this life alone. He created us to live it in community and we can't fight sin on our own. The fourth thing is this, make a plan for when temptation comes. If you are constantly fighting the same temptation again and again and again, the excuse that, well, I didn't know it was coming, stops working after about the third time, okay? If you've got the same temptation coming again and again, come up with a plan. How is it that you're gonna fight it? How is it that you're gonna defeat it? I think this goes back to what we were talking about there in chapter one, when it or in verse one, where it talked about setting our mind on things that are above. I think that God will start transforming our hearts and our minds as we do that to equip us to fight sin well. And the final thing is this. When you fail, don't try to run and hide, but run to Jesus instead. You see, we have a tendency when we sin to think that we can make ourselves clean enough before we get to Jesus. But the fact is, we have no hope of overcoming sin on our own. We can't ever make ourselves clean enough. We need to run to Jesus. Ultimately, I think what Paul is telling us here is this. Your identity with Jesus changes the way you view your sin. Now, when you see your sin before coming to Jesus, it's really easy to think about sin as the fun stuff that God wants you to stop doing. But when you come to Jesus, the thing I think that you will begin to see is that we can stop seeing sin as the, the fun things you get to do. And you'll start seeing, no, 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 no. It's not that I don't get to do these things anymore. It's that I don't have to do these things anymore because Jesus has defeated this. You see, when we receive Christ, the penalty of sin has been removed. I don't want you to miss that. The fact is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's true. But we don't want to stop there because Jesus didn't just die to remove us from the penalty of sin. He also died to remove the power of sin and the presence of sin from our lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we attain perfection here and now in our lives. If that's the case, then, then I just need to get off stage now because I'm not there. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Growth is a process. 
It's not perfection. It's about growing more and more. So one thing I think we need to ask is, what is it right now that's going, in my, going on in my life that, that I need to put to death? It's, a lot, it's easy a lot of times to, to hear about sin and to think, oh, that message is for someone else. You know, my sin, it's not that big a deal. But what Paul says is, no, 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 no. You put to death the sin that's in you. Now maybe here, you're here and, and you're not so sure about this. I mean, you've got sin in your life, but, but it's not that big a deal. You've got complete control over it. Again, I want to remind you, sin is never satisfied with just one slice of your life. Sin desires to consume you and to consume all of you. But the solution to sin is not you handling it on your own. The solution is to run to Jesus, to give it to Jesus. But don't stop there. I think one thing we often miss in sin is the fact that God put us in community for a reason. Look at those God has put in your life and see how they can help you overcome the sin that has a grip in your life. Paul continues this idea and introduces a new idea in verses nine through 11. He says, do, or, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. Here, Paul makes a powerful shift, and what Paul does is he says, hey, Christ is active right now in renewing you to make you into the image that God originally created you in. He's remaking you to be the way you were created to be. The other thing that, that Paul is telling us here is that if you are in Christ, your primary identity is that, is that you're in Christ. You see, your primary identity is no longer whether you're a Democrat or Republican. Your primary identity is no longer your ethnicity. Your primary identity is no longer your religious background. Your primary identity is not your job, your social economic class, or any of that stuff. Your primary identity is Christ because Christ is all in all. You see, the fact is that if we start to lean into this idea, what we'll begin to see is that you have more in common with a new baptized believer at Mustard Seat in Japan than you do with a neighbor across the street who has not accepted Christ but shares your political views. That's how much our identity in Jesus changes everything. I think in this passage, we see this idea come to life. Your identity with Jesus changes the way you see one another. And when you see one another differently, it starts changing the way you treat one another. It means that, that you're actually able to have conversations with people where you don't have to win. It means you're actually able to listen well to others. This doesn't mean that we do away with differences. It doesn't mean that we silence opinions. It doesn't mean that, that we forever agree on everything, no. But it does mean that when we disagree, we disagree well. It does mean that we put the ability to love one another over being right. And it does mean that we make ourselves aware that there's a world watching us right now. And as believers, the way that we love one another is one of the greatest tools we have to witness to the world that's watching us. Paul continues this idea in verses 12 through 13 as he writes this. He says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, 
holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. By calling these people God's chosen ones, what Paul is doing is he's saying, hey, the church for all time is aligned with God's people throughout history, and they've got one job, to live and to love others the way that God has loved us, which changes the way we forgive one another, which changes the way we listen to one another. It changes everything. That's why Paul goes on in verse 14 to write this. He says, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love, again, is a distinguishing marker for those who are in Christ. Here's what Paul goes on to write as he closes out this section in verses 16 through 17. He says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One of the most powerful ways that God shapes us is through community. It's through other people. And if your primary connection with Jesus and with community is coming here with us on the weekend, we are glad that you're here, but I believe that you are missing out on something more that God has for you. Because God didn't create us to walk this walk on our own, and you've got 167 hours outside of this building each and every week. So what I want to encourage you to do is take a step and try out small groups. If you've tried it before and it failed, or if you haven't tried it before, give it a chance. Next week, if you're not in a small group, you'll have the opportunity to connect with a small group through an event we have here called Group Connect. Group Connect will happen at West Campus after each service next weekend. It'll happen here at Newburgh after the 12 o'clock service next weekend. But if you haven't given small groups a chance before, give it a chance now. You see, small groups are an incredible opportunity for us to discover what God says in his word, to figure out what on earth it looks like for us to obey that and what it looks like us to share that with our neighbors. Share that with others that are in our lives. I'm in a small group and my wife and I have been since we got here. This summer, because of some other responsibilities, I had to step away and it's been hard. But what's been cool is that people in my small group keep checking up on me. Even though I haven't been in the last three months because I was leading a college group, they, they still come to check up. And one of my favorite things is that what they do most often is that they will see things in my life. They'll hear me say things and what they'll do is they'll say, Andrew, that's not right. You can't say that or, or you, you're not believing what's true about you because of what God's done. What they do is they, they point me back to the gospel. A second thing that I love about my small group, my wife and I, neither one of us are from here in Evansville. We miss our families, we love our families, but sometimes that's hard. And so a huge gift to us has been having people who we love, who love us, having people who love our son like an extra nephew, and people who my son looks at as aunts and uncles. It's a huge 
gift to us. And I don't know where we would be without our small group. If you haven't given small group a chance before or it failed before, I wanna challenge you to give it a chance here. Starting up in two weeks, we kick off a brand new series called The Story of God and Us, where we're gonna walk through the big picture story of what the Bible says. Give it a chance. Say, God, I'm gonna make this a commitment and I'm gonna trust that you really do use others to shape me. And I think that what you'll find is that being in community with one another changes the way you think because it helps you grow deeper in your identity with Christ. I think that as you press in, that you will begin to see that being in community with one another helps shore up your identity with Jesus so that you see your sin differently. As you begin to see more and more of the good things that God created for you. And I think that as you press in to community, you'll find that it changes the way you view one another so that when you see someone else, you no longer see primarily their political ideology. You'll no longer primarily see a stereotype when you see someone else, but instead you'll see more and more of Christ because that's what we identify with the most. Now, if you're here with us today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, but you want to know more about why we think Jesus is so incredible and worth following, I want you to know that small groups are for you too. There's no better place to learn and grow than in community where you can ask real questions and get real answers. So if that's you, I want you to know that, that you don't have to believe like us to belong with us in a group. I hope you'll take the chance next week with Group Connect. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this letter that Paul wrote so many years ago and how it still shapes how we live life today. Father, I pray right now that you will help us to fix our minds on you and to see the good things that you have for us. Father, I pray that you will help us to see our sin rightly and help us to see that, that no matter how far gone we feel like we are, you can still rescue us. Father, I pray that you will bring us together tighter and tighter as a community as people who come together to be released for the mission you have for us. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.